This is a sermon brought to you by Good News Bible Church, where we believe we should love God, love others, and make disciples. We are located in Chicago's Logan Square neighborhood and invite you to join our family live every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. as we praise and worship with songs and learn about God through the study of the Bible. You can visit our website at goodnewschi.org. That's goodnewschi.org. Let's turn now to hear what the Word of God has for us this week. Some of you all may know Grace Constable, who uh, passed away recently, and she was a key member in our church. I want to read a little bit about her. I wasn't around and didn't get to know her, but some of the people here, she is uh, just a beacon and a light and just a, just a great, great addition to what God has done here uh, at Salem and at Good News Bible Church. So let me go ahead and read this in honor of her. So I'm going to take a minute to recognize a former member of Salem Church and participant of Good News who died this past week at the age of 64. Grace was born on Mozart Street next to the Salem English Church, now our empty lot, and trusted Christ as her Savior in the church Sunday school class. At her funeral, Bill Dillon mentioned how when they were running Awana clubs at Salem, they needed someone to organize the many supplies that Awana entails and gave the job to a young Grace. She went on to become a junior leader, girls club director, and Awana commander for several years. She led various youth programs for the church, was the first ICI missionary, and at the age of 18 became the church secretary under Pastor Manny Ortiz. Grace was a gifted Bible teacher and more recently co-taught with Tony Foster, the, woman, the Women's Mosaic Purple Bible Study, for several years delighting and encouraging women to dig deeper into the Word. Her warm, vibrant, fun-loving personality made her a magnet in sharing her faith, love for the Lord, and study of his word. Grace was a great friend of Carol Lexby's. Over 50 years they were friends who tirelessly visited and advocated for Grace in nursing homes and hospitals these past couple years after Grace suffered the effects of a stroke which left her partially paralyzed and nearly blind. As Carol would say, she says, our hearts ache over the loss of this precious woman of God, but I rejoice that Grace is now healed completely and the first sight she was able to see clearly was her loving Lord and Savior. Praise God for grace and her impact on our congregation and our people here. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for grace. We thank you for her life. Lord, we thank you for the many things that you did through her. Lord, she stands as an example for us to follow. She stands as someone for us to remember and to mimic and to really admire, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would be for those who knew her well and who are grieving still at this time. We pray that you would be with them and that you would comfort them. And that you would also help them to have some joy for Grace as she is uh, she's doing so much better now. So God, we thank you for her. Lord, we pray for our missions team as they are uh, readjusting and figuring out how to um, better support our missionaries, whether it's reading their newsletters or by praying for them more often or even upping our donations to them, our, our contributions to them. Lord, we pray that you would bless bless our endeavors, that you would teach us what to do and give us the willingness to obey, Lord. Give us the patience uh, just to think through what we need to do and how you call, call our church into giving uh, overseas and in our, in our own country and in our own neighborhoods as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So I got something I want to read to you all. So uh, here's uh, Sally. She says, I memorized the Bible verse we were supposed to memorize for Sunday. What verse? I don't know. 
Now you made me forget. Maybe it was something Moses said or something from the book of reevaluation. <laughs> Forgetting is not always a bad thing. I think Sally has a little bit of wisdom, though, right? What happens every time you read the Bible? What should happen in theory, right? Help you reevaluate your life, reevaluate what's going on. How are you obeying? How are you serving? And I think when the Israelites in our Nehemiah series, where we're talking about how God has a process and the way we participate in it, the Israelites at this time, they reevaluated their history, their history as a people under God. And they realized that they were part of a history. Jaden, if you could click to the next one. They could part of a history that last week we talked about had a pattern. And what we noticed is that God initiated this relationship. He was gracious. He chose them. He was merciful to them. And in times of obedience, they served the Lord. But then they would become puffed up. And we also talked about how this kind of mimics our own relationships with the Lord as well. They become puff, puffed up. Arrogant was the key word. And they, be, and they would forsake God. And then when this would happen, God sometimes was still, he was still being gracious and merciful but at points, it got to a time where he would give them over and there would be a punishment. And so they would be punished, and usually they were being punished by being conquered. And at this point, in this people, they're actually still in exile. And then Israel, in this time of punishment, which to be honest with you is still God being gracious and merciful, they would cry out. And then what would God do? The Bible tells us that God would hear them and that he would send them many saviors or he would send them deliverers to save them, to take them out of where they are. And then they're back to following the Lord. And so the people here, after recounting this and seeing this over and over in their history, they say that God was just in all that had happened to them. And now we talked about how this was a good description of what Confession is. Confession isn't just admitting what you've done wrong. It's admitting what God does right. And so they realize that. In Nehemiah 9.38, they say, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. See, at the end of last week, what we talked about was the people had came to a place of decision. They looked at all of their history. They looked at their people. They looked at this cycle and pattern of behavior, and they decided they were going to do something about it. And they're going to enter into a covenant. So today we get the opportunity to see them enter into a covenant. That is their response. And then the question I want to kind of bring up is, how appropriate is their response? After all God has shown them, how appropriate is their response? response. Pray with me as we dive into Nehemiah chapter 10. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this series, Lord. Thank you for how we get to see um, just a history of what you've done. Lord, we praise you for who you are. We praise you how you do not change, Lord, even when we as people change, even when Israel changed, Lord. You were a God who was sure to your promises, and, and to your choosing of them. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to hear your word, that you would pierce us, that you would help us, 
to understand that you would give us knowledge that comes only from your word, Lord, knowledge and wisdom to live it out as well. Lord, I pray that you would help us in our obedience, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers. Thank you for this time. Be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Nehemiah 10, verses 28 to 29. We're going to skip reading those names, but we're not going to skip those names. We're going to talk about those people, but we're not going to skip. We're just, we're just going to skip those names. So join with me at verse 28 and 29. It reads, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people, peoples of the lands up to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, what do they do? They join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter in a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. So I have to recall in all of this, they enter into a curse and to an oath. So some of you all are like, I'm okay with earth, with, 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 with an oath. I'm okay with a covenant. But man, I heard the word curse, right? That sounds kind of rough. So we're going we're gonna to see how and is this an appropriate response for what they're going through. Notice that they're actually in the beginning trying to be like God. They're trying to set up a covenant. Who, who, who's, do, who's been doing that, right? We heard about the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. So it was wonderful for the nation as a whole to feel that something had to be done about the sin problem among them. But it was meaningless unless individuals and then collectively came forth and said, let's do something about this. Let's make an oath. Let's come into a curse in the covenant. So here are the leaders named above. There's 84 of them in all. And they were willing to put their name on the line for the covenant before God. Does anyone notice whose name is first? Nehemiah. We haven't heard about him in a while. But Nehemiah's still doing his thing. He's still there. Some of you all were worried about him. He's still there. And he's the first person they name. And he puts his name on that covenant. Now, we've been with Nehemiah, studying Nehemiah for a while now, right? Can you guys imagine how we felt? Being away, hearing the news. You remember all the narrative? And then he finally gets, uh, the, you know, the king gives him this favor. Lord puts it in the king to give him this favor. He comes. The wall is built up. The gates are set. And then now he gets to experience that the people are having a renewal, not just of the physical peace, but of the spiritual as well. So just imagine how he felt. He must have been super, super Happy, super, uh, super prayerful and praising God for what God had done. I've been the pastor here for, I think it's uh, finished three months. And I want to tell you all that uh, I've been having so much fun, so excited. People say, how are you doing? And I'm doing really well. I'm super happy, love you here. And I'm not Nehemiah, but I know what it feels like to like God put you in a position and you just feel really excited about the work. And I'm feeling that Nehemiah is super excited about what God has done and how God has used him. And so I'm super excited. Yesterday, my best friend got married. He had a really bad situation with his first marriage. And then, you know, the guy didn't want to date forever. He wouldn't even, he wouldn't even look at people, right? He, he just was not interested. He was very hurt. But God redeemed that whole situation. He got married. And this whole thing was filled with people. 
uh, of him getting married. And the whole time as he was uh, just complaining about how long everything took, he was like, we need to get down the aisle faster. Like, you know, he was a little bit complaining. But it was neat to just see all the little things, even something like that that's been going on actually in this building and especially among, among us. We've had other wet weddings as well, right? So it's been a really good time. So notice that the spiritual leaders, the Levites, they signed the covenant. And if you're thinking about the Levites, they're thinking we're back in business. And we're back in business for good, right? We also see that the civic leaders signed the covenant. So this was a holistic event. This was corporate. This was everybody, not just individuals. So individuals coming together. Quick question. You guys noticed that in Nehemiah, at one part, there was one whole chapter of names, and then you have a list of 84 names here. You guys ever wonder why names are in the Bible or what would be the purpose of that? When I taught this in a small group Bible study, I actually turned on the Bible app and made the Bible app read them to us because I didn't want to skip any, any word of the Bible, any name. But let me tell you this. When we see those names, it tells us that people, individuals, are important to the Lord. Individuals are important. It's not just like this broad stroke in the Bible. He's talking about real people, real situations. God actually knows the who. That's within the group. Also, in the Hebrew culture, you guys know that names mean something. They meant something very deep. They kind of still do in some of our cultures, but they meant something. So those names being listed meant something. Another thing is it proves the Bible is not a fairy tale. When you see a names like that, if you did write a fairy tale, I don't think I've ever read a fairy tale that just had lists and lists of names. It's not a good writing device in fiction text. You know, you have to tell a story. You got the story arc going. You don't have time to put a list of names for two or three chapters. No kids reading that book. No adults reading that. Disney Plus not making a movie out of that. So this is not a fairy tale. This is a history right here. This is an actual recording of these individuals that God worked through. It gives detailed accounts. So going through names and the family shows God's faithfulness throughout generations and times. The list of names makes points. Do you often see, like it says, they were the son of or they came from this family? It shows that he's been working over and over. It's not just a one-time thing. It's not always just that. So let's look at verse 29. Verse 29 tells us that the rest of the people all entered into a curse and an oath. So it wasn't just the leaders, the Levites, the civic leaders, and Nehemiah. The people joined in as well. So Israel commits themselves once more to obey God's law. They made the covenant publicly. What happens when you make things publicly? You kind of have to put your money where your mouth is, right? It, there's an accountability level to that. And so they do this publicly. They did this as an individual, but then collectively as a people. It was also important that other people be witness. And that's why they did it publicly. So this determination to obey, what's it sparked by? It's sparked by their assurance that God has shown himself faithful. They've seen this over years and years. So faith in God, it often elicits obedience. Knowing who God is, knowing how he acts, often you begin to want to obey God. And that's what's happening here. They commit to obeying all. Now, that word, all, that's a, that's a big statement. Do you guys notice that their covenant is pretty, 
pretty all-inclusive, right? So in making it a covenant, they agreed to accept the curse from God if they did not obey his law. And what that means there is they accepted the curse as a form of his correction to bring them back if he needed to. That they wanted to follow everything, but if they didn't, please correct us, bring us right back, Lord. That's what that means. And that is an appropriate response. When God has done amazing things, when he's shown himself faithful, that is an appropriate response, individually and collectively, to come into a covenant. Now, for us, none of us has really said, I'm going to obey you in everything, and Lord, you know, put me in a, I'm in a curse uh, relationship here if it doesn't work out. But what I ha- have heard myself say, and some of you all say, is something like this. Lord, whatever it takes, I want to follow you. Have you all sometimes prayed that before? Whatever it takes, I want to be faithful, Lord. And if, I, and if I sway to the left or right, Lord, please put me back on the path, right? And some of you all, after you pray that, you get like a shake in you. You're like, ooh, that's scary, right? But you get to that point where you really get to see, get a glimpse of who God is, and that prayer comes out. That is essentially kind of praying the same thing here. And I believe that's a good prayer for us. That's a good response that the Israelites had and a good response for us as well. We are reminded in this text that God's people should actively pursue renewal by committing themselves to obedience. Obedience. The danger in this is that they could have been tempted to think that they could do this on their own. And that's the same temptation we feel, right? But when we see correctly... And I believe at this point in time, we see them seeing correctly. We should take God's faithfulness as our motivation to strive for obedience. And so when we see correctly, and we pray that through God's word, we see correctly here in in, in the example here of the Israelites, that we will be able to strive for obedience. So our participation itself is not going to save us. Remember, this is God's divine process. But our participation demonstrates that God's divine purpose is actually working in us. You know, his divine purpose is working in us. So let's hear a little bit more about this covenant. It had different pieces to it. So turn with me to verse 30. Jaden, my clicker isn't working. I'm gonna need you to go to the next one. Sorry about that, guys. Let's read verse 30. We would not give our daughters to the peoples of the land, or take their daughters for our sons. So that's the first thing that they come into. So before Israel entered the promised land, God had forbidden intermarriage with people from nations outside the covenant. You don't have to turn with me, but let's, I'm going to read to you Deuteronomy 7, 2b-4. It says, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. And this command right here, this what they're entering here, is actually towards the parents. Because back then, the parents would make the decisions of who you would get married to. So parents controlled marriage here. And it was stressed that this was a serious matter of marrying someone from an idolatrous people. And what this sin generally causes when you marry outside of people that are following God, whenever they did that in Israel's history, 
we saw something called syncretism. And you guys hear the root word there, sync, right? So you, what, hap- what would happen is if you yourself as an as a Israelite who's a follower of God, if you would then marry someone else, they might have, who, didn't, who doesn't follow God, they might have different religious practices or different idols. And what often would happen is they would synchronize them. So while they would, in a sense, do the things that they were supposed to do in following God, they would also do the things of following their spouse's God. And they acted as if they worked together. But they did not. They were not synchronized. And that's why it's wrong, and that's why it's a sin. The biggest example of this is what I like to call, and I've heard people call it, Solomon's folly. You guys know about Solomon, right? Let me read to you what the Word says about Solomon in 1 Kings. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord has said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn you away, turn away your heart after their gods. Look what, look what it says about Solomon, though. It says, Solomon clung to these in love. He synchronized his life based on his love life instead of obedience. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. You said which one? All 700, probably. Some of you are a little worried. I'm not telling, that's not the application, so we're good. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Do you all see what happens? You guys see what happens in syncretism? And I want to challenge you all. If you have not entered into a marriage relationship or into even like a courting relationship, dating relationship, do not enter into one with someone who is of a different belief system or a different faith. We've seen in Scripture over and over that God has commanded it very clearly not to do. Uh, there is a, a phrase that I learned very young, and uh, I heard someone each actually use this as a defense. They, you guys ever heard of the phrase missionary dating? So they said, I'm dating them, but I'm dating them with the intent of leading them to the Lord. But they are also dating you with the intent of leading you to something else. It's just natural. That's their belief system. That's your belief system. And you got a war in there. And it doesn't really work. It doesn't really work. Uh, God can do great things. But one should never disobey God's commandments in hoping that he would just miraculously turn out your disobedience into something right. We've seen the pattern of Israel where they've tried to cut corners in different parts. We got a whole Bible full of it, a whole part of the Bible full of it. It just doesn't work. And if you think about it, marriage is a covenant established by God between the husband and wife, but then also what? Most importantly, between them and God. I remember when the pastor was up here yesterday and giving those vows, and he kept emphasizing that this was a covenant embraced with God as well. 
So just think about the renewal that's gone on with them. We know that some of them, even before they came to this point where they had spent time worshiping and praising God and hearing the word, they had to separate. And in the book of Ezra, there's a real tough separation. I believe it's in chapter 9 or 10 where they actually had to like cut themselves away from, from different relationships. And now they're in this time and they realize that they want to come into covenant and say, Lord, we're not going to sin in this way again. How else did Israel participate in God's renewal? They did not. Oh, I'm going to read verse 31. I was going to go jump in, but let me read the verse. It says, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So here comes another appropriate response from their collective hearts. Jaden, if you can go to the next one. How many of you all remember back in the day that stores were closed on Sunday? Anybody remember that? Some of you new people are like, you're lying. We're not lying. <laughs> stores used to be closed. Like you, you would have that one store that was open and everybody and their mama was there. But for the most part, like restaurants, things were shut down. And I remember that when I was very, very young. And you see now, uh, stores might close a little bit earlier on Sunday. Of course, Chick-fil-A is famous for being closed on Sunday, right? But under Old Testament law, God, God said that no one could buy or sell anything on the Sabbath day. So these citizens of Jerusalem have been breaking this law, and they now covenant with God to obey. So what's the, what, you guys, what is the sin behind what they're doing in, a, in breaking this law, though. And I'm not saying that it was the sin of the restaurants and stores around here. But why do you guys think they, they decided to start opening up on Sunday? Money, right. They said, everyone else closed. I'm going to open mine. Then they all come to mind, right? And that was the same idea that the Israelites struggled with as well. They didn't trust God and his provision of them. So then they started to open shop or do deals on Sunday when they were commanded not to. So the motive for breaking this was very clear. They were selling and they were making money. So instead of working the six days and resting on the seventh, they chose to make money and not trust God in that. And so now part of their covenant is, is we're not going to have any commerce. We're not going to be making money on the Sabbath day. We're going to obey what God tells us to do on that holy day. So this is a great challenge for the church today. Not in the same way of not working on Sundays, but I believe it's a big challenge for us because remember, the root of the sin is an unhealthy love for money versus a trust in God. So what happens in the way a lot of us, I see us doing this, is you guys know what it means when people say we cut corners, right? We find ways to, in a sense, uh, make money maybe with not just, the, not just the right means. So we need to have the same heart they had and covenant before God to make money only in ways that are obedient and glorifying to him. You know, I get a lot of youth, and even when I was a school teacher, I get a lot of kids. And, you know, a lot of people always ask that question, what are you going to do with your life when you grow up, things like that. So a lot of kids would ask me and say, Mr. Borges, how did you know what you wanted to be when you, uh, when you grow up? I'm still growing up, by the way, as you're growing up, right? And I said, well, for me, guys, 
I never really thought about what I wanted to be when I grew up because I'm a Christian, because I'm a follower of God. When I think about making money and all that, I always thought about where would God want me to work and how much money he would want me to work, how much money he would want me to give. Because if I work at a job where it doesn't enable me to obey God and all the different commandments he gives us, then that's maybe not the best way to be making money. That's almost doing what they kind of did. We're taking holy days, holy times, and we're substituting them for, for making more and more and more money. And so this issue on, is really based on trusting God to supply. An overemphasis on work and making money can often show how much we trust ourselves rather than the Lord with our finances. Sometimes this can cause us to cheat and cut corners. So I want you all to know that as your pastor, I want you to take your job seriously, especially those who do not work in a uh, Christian setting, you know, and make it, make it something that you work hard and honest and God-honoring. My job now gives me a lot of freedom, and there's times when my boss asks me where I'm at, and I'm like, well, right now I'm in the Wendy's drive through getting lunch, boss. He's like, you need to hurry up and get to this school. I'm, I'm coming, boss. I'm getting my four for four real quick, right? But you have to be honest. You know, it'd be really easy for me to lie or be real honest and, uh, and, and just do what you're supposed to do, right? So bills do need to be paid. Kids need things and so on. But if we trust God, we'll know that he will take care of us. You know, I hear about some people in, in some churches, sometimes they come to a point where they realize, I was making all this money, we were doing all these things. Uh, Francis Chan is a great example of that, where he actually took all of what he was doing, prayed about it with his wife, and then they decided to downsize. So they had this big, beautiful home. He ended up moving to a trailer park home. That's the thing, right? Trailer park with homes. So he, wanted, he moved into one of, I, never, I don't think I've seen one. So he's gone, he went there, and he brought all his family. I think he got like five or six kids, took in someone, and they all lived in this trailer park so that they could minister better, you know? And the money that he made from books, all that money went to something else, so he chose to live a very, you know, normal lifestyle, not lavish. So just know that that shows something about what he believes and when we act that way, it shows something of what we believe in terms of God's ability to provide for us. How are our lives set up? So these Israelites said, we're going to set up our lives in a way so that we can trust God with our finances. The next part is a chunk. And it answers the question is, how, do, how else are they participating in God's spiritual renewal with them? Turn with me to verse 32. It says, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. And for all the work of the house of our God, we the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering, to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses, at time appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. 
and to bring the first of our dough. That's uh, bread, not like their money again. And our, <laughs> and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. You all notice all the different types of offerings? You all know that in terms of your offerings to good news, it's not just financial. Do you know that some of these will require work and bringing stuff to it, right? Notice that they said they were not going to neglect, and they showed that by animal offerings, tithing, bringing money. They pledged to bring their first fruits of everything, the very best. And you think about animals during that time. Animals were a big currency there. And here they're willing to give up, their, give up their animals, the best one. The priesthood is reestablished as well. We see that part with Aaron and the Levites. They collectively say, we're not going to neglect the house of the God. They were supportive of God's work. And they simply did two things. First, they agreed to give as God had commanded them. The firstborn, first fruits, and the tithe. And then secondly, they agreed to give as a special need required. So you see, one was like a rotating with the tax of the wood and the tax of the, uh, and the giving of the shekel. That was more of a rotating one. So as need arose, they were willing to give as well. So as commanded, and then going above the command in a sense, and saying when a need arises, I can give more. So sometimes people use a tithe or their giving as saying, this is what I'm going to give, and that's it. Or sometimes people say, this is what I'm going to give joyfully, and then if other things come up, I'm willing to give even more. I'm not going to neglect the work that goes on in the house of the Lord. And think about it. Giving of your firstborn and first fruits, those were risky ways to, to give. But God promised to be faithful. Can you imagine you're bringing out your best stuff and you're giving that away? You could easily say, but this is the best part. You know, I should keep that part. But in being faithful, they had to listen to what God asked them and commanded them to do. So spending their money wisely and not making money in an evil manner. So if you hold on to money so tightly that you will not be a giver, then you have revealed something, guys, that's in your heart. And I must confess that at times I have chosen to do things with my money that revealed that I had an incorrect and ungodly relationship with money. One thing I remembered is I went to one church where the pastor, you know, wrote books and things like that previously. And so I felt like, oh, I didn't need a, I don't really need a tithe to that church. He, he's good. You know, his wife got extra nice outfits on. Like, they're okay. But how many of you all know that they were given to the Lord and to the house of God, the, to the collective? So I know that we have a model where you have four associate, four, uh, three pastors, a senior pastor, four pastors who are all bivocational. Combined, we only take 60,000 total. Combined, no benefits, none like that. Uh, 
And I want you all to know, though, that that doesn't mean that your giving should go down. I just want to be real explicit about that. Uh, the goal is to give what God has put in your heart to be joyful with so that more ministry would go on. The idea of the team, in a sense, taking less was that as people gave as they normally were, and giving has been down, that there'd be more money for ministry. You guys saw in the note I sent out that we're starting a youth, youth group of, uh, of types, right? And we want to have different items. And that wasn't like a suggestion, like I'm asking for real. And if people don't give, I'm going to start emailing people privately and talking to them, right? Because these are things that we don't want to neglect, all the things that God wants to do here. And some people say, well, it's not good to talk about money. Well, if you read your Bible in the New Testament, it seems like Jesus thought it was pretty good to talk about money because he talked about it a lot. So if you guys are uncomfortable, then that's good because you should be. Because when Jesus spoke about money, it wasn't very comfortable for them either. Okay, so we just want to, I want to challenge you, and the pastors want to challenge you that what we're getting paid and, and, and what we're making on the side really has nothing to do with your tithe. You know, is it true that I'm still going to be chubby if you don't tithe? Yes. But that doesn't mean that you don't get to the work of the Lord. It's not really about me. It's not about the four-piece McNugget kids I have and my wife. It's not about that. It's about what God is doing here. Okay? So the New Testament speaks with great clarity, and it's not just Jesus, on the principle of giving. That giving should be regular. Jaden, if you can go to, oh, not a, not a clicker work. That giving should be regular. That means you should have a cadence of it. You know why? Habitual giving is the best. Because then you, you kind of have a system. Right? It should be planned where you work it out. If your income increases, you might have a plan. Maybe you might want to think of that. Maybe, maybe you're thinking about there's an amount that God is asking you to tithe to your church, and then there's an amount that you want to start supporting the missionary that you've heard of, right? So you kind of plan it. You kind of think it through. And then you want it to be proportional. The Bible is very clear. If you have sowed much and reaped much, then you can give more. You know, you can. And when God blesses you with that little extra check or something, you might want to consider that. You know, not necessarily just the good news, but to the ministry, to God's work as a whole, right? And then lastly, it should be private. The Bible gives us an example of your hand shouldn't even know, be no, doing, your hand should not even know what the other hand is doing, right? So you don't have to put it on front street, okay? So if you're reluctant to be given as the Bible says, I want to just talk to you all and says that it can be a blessing. If you struggle with giving, talk to somebody who somehow you know, usually someone else said it about them, someone you know is a great giver. Talk to them and ask them if they've ever had want or if they've ever gone poor. Ask them if God hasn't blessed them with even more. Ask them, they'll tell you. As they give and as they're faithful, it's amazing what God does. In terms of application, I want to bring it home, and I want to think about what's, you know, we're in God's process, his divine process, and we have our participation. First, I want to look at the, at the individual, and I found this story, and I thought that it was very, very good for us to hear. Pierre Barlot was a gunner in the fort, in the fort of Mount Valorin during the Prussian siege of Paris. One day he was standing by his gun when his general, the commander, came up and leveled his glass at a bridge. Gunner, he said, 
So this is a war scene. Do you see the bridge over there? So he tells them, he's pointing his gun there. He's like, look over there. Do you see that bridge? And, and Pierre says, yes, sir. He sees the bridge. And that little shanty in the thicket of shrubs to the left, I see it, sir. Yeah, said Pierre. Yes, I see it, turning pale. It's a nest of Prussians. So the enemy was, had a bunch of people in there. He says, try it with a shell. Try it with a shell. Shoot a shell at it. Pierre turned paler still. He sighted his piece deliberately, carefully, then fired it. Boom, well hit, well hit, exclaimed the general. But as he looked at Pierre, he was surprised to see that Pierre had a big tear running down his cheek. And then the, you know, his commander says, what's the matter? And he says, pardon me, general. It was my house, everything that I really had in the world. So for the sake of obedience, he was willing to give anything. Do you know I've heard sermons and I've heard preachers get up and talk about how members gave each other kidneys, gave each other cars. I remember the Runquist family, we had our little Honda Civic and we put all four of our kids in the back. Uh, there was only three seatbelts, so it was kind of bad. And then we'd both be in the front and the Runquist were like, we'll give you our van. We're like, no, no, we got a new car coming. We just need a couple of money to come in. This was a couple years ago. But you know that people give, they call some of these things gifts in kind. People give uh, things, it's not always money. So just know that this story illustrates very clearly that this person was willing to give everything in obedience. And then lastly, our participation in the process as a collective. Last week I brought up something and then I just kind of left it, but I wanted to come back to it. I, was, I brought up the idea that in our reputation in a lot of places is that good news uh, is ingrown. We struggle with kind of being uh, and it's not a struggle of being a good family. That's not the struggle, but we kind of struggle with, with, with outreach. And some of us would even say that about ourselves. But I wanted to tell you all a little bit of research of what I've done in terms of how churches collectively think about evangelism and think about reaching out. So evangelism is often the most, I'm sorry, the least natural ministry in many churches. What happens is when churches first get planted, they're often very evangelistic, but then as people and people come, you have to figure out systems so there's less time to be out there. So it's not always just necessarily sin or people don't want to do the, the, the work of reaching out. It's that now you have to kind of take care of it. we got a building here, right? we got a lot of properties. We have to kind of take care. That takes time. But if we don't have an intentional, uh, an intentionality about evangelism, most research says that it won't happen, right? And then if we depend on like one big event to kind of do it, what that usually says is that one big event is where people come to the church or come to the Lord, but not the every day. So we have all these days, but sometimes a big event can be like, well, we do this event, that's what's going to do it. So what they found is that the most successful churches in reaching unbelievers and growing in terms of real growth, and what I mean by real growth is most of the churches that you see, specifically mega churches, have something we call transfer growth. What that means is other smaller churches are losing members to other churches who have nicer music, nicer buildings, free coffee, all of these things. And so people are leaving there, and those are getting bigger, but the body 
uh, the, the, the body of Christ is not necessarily getting bigger. So when we're talking about growth, we're talking about people who do not know God yet, knowing God. So the people that have been, the churches that have been most effective at this have two main characteristics. Prayer, but then whatever that prayer does, obedience. Prayer and obedience. So God, goal setting is one of the things that, I know that sounds weird, but goal setting has been very effective in many churches as well. There's an example of one church that said, uh, they called it a thousand in a year. So they, as a church, I think the church had about 120, 130 people. As a church, they said, we are going to have a thousand contacts, whether that can be praying with someone, uh, recording if you had a con spiritual conversation with someone, uh, any events they did, putting flyers out, hitting up the neighborhood. And what they found is they actually exceeded that thousand by having 1,700. Their goal was 1,000. They ended up doing that 1,700. And then that church saw in that year 24 people come to the Lord. There's all these statistics that most people that don't know God yet say if they just got an invite, they would probably check it out. There's like a 60% chance that they would. The odds are even better. So I just want to have a specific challenge for you all, and then I'll step off. What I want you all to do, what I want every one of us to do is to pray. And then execute, some, execute your prayer by telling someone your testimony. Just tell someone your testimony. That's the challenge. So someone who does not know God, see if you can pray about specific people, and then the goal is to tell someone your testimony, how you became a believer. And make sure when you tell them that testimony that you tell them the gospel. That's my challenge to you all. Okay? And we're not going to record that yet. We do have some things in the work as leaders to have a more systemic way of how we do it so it can be long-lasting. But that's just an individual challenge. You know, the Israelite people, they heard all of this. They recalled. They saw how God was faithful. And then they obeyed and they entered into. And I just want to have us obey and think about what we struggle with and what maybe we need to confess as a church and then go out and do something about it, just like our example here in Nehemiah. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Good News Bible Church, where we equip people to love God, love others, and make disciples. To help support our mission, please visit our online giving portal through our website at www.goodnewschai.org.